格罗西书二章六至十节：你们既然接受了主耶稣基督，就当尊他而行，在他里面生根建造，信心坚固，正如你们所领受的教训，感谢的心也更加增长了。你们要谨慎，恐怕有人用他的理学和虚空的妄言，不照着基督，乃照人间的遗传和世上的小学，就把你们掳去。因为神本性一切的丰盛都有形有体的居住在基督里面，你们在他里面也得了丰盛，他是各样掌执政掌权者的元首。The reading is from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 10. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him. Strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. This is the word of the Lord for us. Well, I'd like to say good morning to the remnant, those of us who got left behind.、Um, there's an uneasiness to being one of those left behind if you're old enough to remember. Uh, but anyway, welcome. My name is Craig Bruninger. My wife Julie and I have been here in Beijing and attending this church、uh, for the last five years or so. And、uh, today, as Rick mentioned, this is week number two of our series on Colossians. Last week we started with the introduction and we looked at chapter one. This week we are picking up at verse twenty-four and then continuing on through the rest of the chapter. Now this is a study of the book of Colossians, which means it is our desire to understand Paul is the writer and God, who through Paul had a message to give, he had a word to give. Which means we can't just pick out. Interesting verses and phrases that move us that we like. If we truly are going to do a study, then we have to be following what Paul is saying from beginning to end. And if you were not here last week and did not look at chapter one, then you're a little behind. But I tell you what, what I would like to do is to、uh, bring you up to date very briefly. Colossians. The book is written to believers. So please, if you are not a believer, the things it's saying do not necessarily describe you. They're not necessarily even available to you yet in your present condition. But listen, what Paul wants to do is reveal the Son, Christ, and His work. Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the creator and the sustainer of everything that happens currently, right now. Christ reconciled believers to God. If you are a believer, we have been reconciled to God by the work of Christ, and Christ is presented also as the head of the church. Now, Christ is much more than that, but. 
that is the basics from chapter 1. Now, we are ready for our chapter, but not quite. You see, it might be good, as we look at chapter 2 and concentrate on that, if we took a quick look at chapters 3 and 4 to know what was coming. That might help us understand the perspective. So just a brief view, which if you did as we suggested a few weeks ago, read through the whole chapter, then you caught this flavor. So then, what is it that we are going to find in Colossians 3 and 4? I'm not going to teach it, but let me just give you a few highlights. Let me give you a few of the instructions and commands that you're going to be presented with in the next chapter and, Lord willing, next week. Set your hearts on things above. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. That includes sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Rid yourself of all anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other. Clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another and be thankful. Teach and admonish one another. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. Devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ. I just pick some of the commands that you're going to be hearing about in the next chapter and next week if you come. Okay, so then, ready, go. You could pull these commands out and give a nice talk on any one of these items. But if you did, or if you are trying to follow and obey the instructions of chapter 3 and 4 without going through chapters 1 and 2 then you've missed the point. And when you say, I can't do this, and then Paul would say, all right, well, remember what chapter 2 said. And if you say, well, no, I haven't read chapter 2. I'm just trying to love my wife. I'm just trying to be a good boss. So now we get to come back to our passage. But first, Psalm 1, blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. We are reading scripture, the law of the Lord. We are blessed when we delight on it and when we meditate in it. 
Today, I invite you to meditate with me. We are going to meditate on what Paul says. That means we have to read what Paul says. We have to work through what Paul says. We have to carry his thought through, and then we get to think on it. Meditation is meditation on the Word of God, not meditation on a feeling that we have, whatever that may be. So meditation is work. And today, I am going to do some work in front of you and with you. Maybe you want to think of this a little bit like a cooking class, where you are going to receive instruction on what to do. You can't do it all yourself while you listen, but you're going to pick up the general flavor of that, because it sure would be nice if you could prepare your own meals, wouldn't it? And yet so often, even in churches, we have an attitude of fast food. You know, I don't got much time here. I can show up on Sunday morning. I hope you prepared something really nice and give it to me. I hope it tastes good, and if it's nourishing, that's fine. But yet, we're invited to meditate on the Word of God, and we are invited to meditate with an element of delight. How does that fit in? Perhaps you could picture if I say, okay, study and meditate on the Word of God. You have a general idea. Okay, I know. I need to sit down. I need to spend time. I need to read. What if I say the one who delights in the law of the Lord is blessed, and then I say, ready, go, delight? That's kind of hard. Is that something I actually can do? Well, perhaps today you're going to hear an invitation to delight. Let us pray. Well, Father, we desire to open your word today. It is from you. We particularly are interested in in what you have said through Paul to this letter we call Colossians. You speak truth there. You build truth upon truth. And today we would desire to know what it is you are saying. Before you give us these instructions for a life that is enjoyable and worthy of you, You you want us to spend some time looking within ourselves and looking in our relationship to you. Open our eyes that we can see that in your name and for your namesake, Lord. Amen. So, chapters 1 and 2 are preparing us for 3 and 4. With all the instructions and commands and the celebration that's available there, we're getting prepared now. How can we be prepared to do difficult things? If we could act like Jesus... If we would like to act like Jesus, how can we make ourselves do that? How can we train ourselves to do that? How do we accomplish the changes in behavior we want to? How can we stop doing the things we seem to want to do, but they're so destructive to us and to others? How can we start doing the things we think we should do? How can we get control over our lives? I'd like to give as an example something from Greek mythology For those of us who remember the stories from the Iliad and the Odyssey and some others. So, this is a story about Greek mythology that illustrates two different methods to overcome dangerous temptations which seem impossible to resist. Two temptations that are of extreme danger and seems impossible to resist and two methods of how to do that. Well, if you're familiar with the Iliad and the Odyssey, 
Odysseus, in his travels around the world, had to go by a very deadly island. It was the island where the sirens lived. And then the sirens were mythical half-women, half-bird creatures. And they would eat you, to put it plainly, if they could. However, how could they get you to come? They got you to come to their island because they sang such a beautiful song that every person who heard it would just naturally steer their ship into shore or jump in the water to swim there because the song was so alluring they couldn't do anything about it. And they all went to their destruction. Well, Odysseus knew they were coming upon this island. But yet he wanted to hear the song. So what he did is he instructed his men to tie him to the mast of the ship, tie him securely, and then fill their own ears with wax. And so they sailed by this island, and, and Odysseus heard the song of the sirens, and everything within him, he struggled to get loose. He yelled, he screamed, he did what he could to get loose to go there, but yet he was bound so tight that later on, when they were far enough away and the sailors released him, he could remember the song, but it had no attraction to him, and so he was saved. He made it through alive, but at great and difficult struggle. In another Greek myth, the story of Jason and the Argonauts, they too had to pass the same island. But on the ship, they had Orpheus. And oh, Orpheus was a musician extraordinaire. And the music that he would play and he would sing would be enchanting and grip you. And so the captain of the ship asked Orpheus to play. And so they sailed by that island. But the song of Orpheus was so enchanting to them, they had no desire to jump into the water. And thus they passed through that difficult temptation themselves. I think an application which is available here, is in our lives, life is full of temptation. And you know, perhaps, sometimes, you need friends, accountability friends. You need friends to come and, visit and, and physically hold you. You need friends who come and stop you from doing something. You need people who come and take your computers away and people who come and check up on you on every day. And, and, and perhaps you need that. Perhaps you have to just bear and grit your teeth to just make it through this one scenario. Those times probably come, and hopefully you have friends that can come alongside of you. But that is a miserable way to live, where you always live barely making it and frequently not making it and giving in to temptation. And so we could talk about commands of what you should not do. We could talk about accountability groups. We could talk about things you should do. And maybe for a season you can grit your teeth and get up early and read your Bible or fill in any of these blanks, all those things we mentioned in chapter 3 and 4. Maybe you have ways of doing it. But what if there is another way besides the gritting of the teeth and besides this huge struggle? Perhaps that's something we can find. Chapter 1, we concluded with the supremacy of Christ. Christ is supreme I believe we can ask a very sanctified and holy question next. 
And that question is, so what? There is the unholy, so what, I don't care. But there's the very holy, okay, Christ is supreme, so what? And that's for those of us who believe that. And yet, somehow, Christ has been supreme, but we look at last week, last month, or the last 10 years of our life, and we say the supremacy of Christ just hasn't seemed to make a huge difference to me. And having established that supremacy of Christ, Paul invites us into chapter 2. If you have your Bibles open, you can turn to that. I... We'll be showing most of the scripture on the screen. And, and again, this is what I'd like to do. I, I'm going to read with you through a lot of this scripture today. First of all, the word of God, is, it's much better than my words commenting on it. My words commenting on it perhaps can enhance your understanding of that. We're going to, I'm going to model going through this trying to understand, okay, what's Paul's point in his argument here? And at the end, if we're looking at this as a cooking school, I'm going to finish with some take-home prepared meals that, uh, that I think can give you something to be thinking about. So, Colossians 1.24, Paul is continuing. Christ is supreme. Now, he says, I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. So Paul says, this is my job, people. Colossae, the Christians. I have been commissioned by God to give to you the word of God in its fullness. So Paul is claiming, listen to me, I will give you enough of the word of God. You won't need to go looking at other places. Come with me as I unfold the word of God in its fullness. There's a mystery. And the mystery means... We did not understand it before. No one understood this before, but now they do. It is a mystery that has been disclosed to the, to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. Here's the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, up until this time with the Jews in the Old Testament, they had hopes. They had hope. Their hope lie, laid was in the temple. That's where God was. Would you like to participate in God's glory? Then we must go to the temple. Would you like to participate in God's glory? Then we follow and obey his commands. But there was a mystery of that. The temple was for a season. Because God was going to do something more, which is to send his son Jesus to live and to die and now, in the fullness of this mystery, we get to say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. How does that settle with you? Christ in you, if you're a believer. And by the way, when we speak of Christ within you, 
I will just say, within this world of motivational speakers, within this world of Eastern philosophy and New Age kinds of thinking, you'll hear many people say, the Christ that's in you. They mean the Christ that's in you, the Buddha that's in you, the Enlightenment that's in you, the everything else. I'm not referring to that. I'm referring to Jesus Christ, Son of God, resurrected Savior, who is in heaven right now, and yet in some mysterious way he has come to dwell in me in my salvation. Christ in you, the hope of glory. If you have to leave right now, that's okay, because you have something to chew on for the rest of the week. What do you mean, Christ in me, the hope of glory? <laughs> yeah, like my last week was glorious? I don't think so. Yeah, not much hope, do you? Maybe if you're a near Christian, you have hope that you'll get it all together, but some of us veterans, it's like, I don't, I don't have much hope in Craig. I don't have much, much in hope in techniques, seminars, messages. I just don't because I've heard them. I don't have much hope. And Paul says, Craig, let me tell you what you can put your hope in. Christ in you. The hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. What does that mean to be mature in Christ? Interesting question. You probably didn't think, wow, I have no idea what that means. What does it mean to be mature? You have to have some means of measuring. How do you measure maturity? Uh, behavior. Isn't that how we measure maturity? Okay, well, that, that can be an indicator of maturity. Skill level, understanding, all different measures of maturity depending on what you're talking about. Stop and ask the question, what's God's definition of maturity? that he's using here. Fully mature in Christ. There's a behavior component that's important, but you see, he's not there yet. He's not saying, act right, do all these things. He's going to mention those things later, but that's not his measure of maturity. He is wanting to teach to bring a maturity by this message, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. How do you measure maturity? One way to measure maturity is time. You see, how long does it take for you to be reminded Christ in you is your hope and glory? You stumble and you sin and you have a miserable day and you have a miserable two or three days. How long does it take before you stop and you say, wait a minute, wait, my hope is not in myself. My hope is in Christ in me. Maturity means it does not take me days to be reminded of that. Maturity means I more quickly come and realize, no, no, Christ in me is my hope. Not my promises, not my resolutions, not my plans. It is Christ in me description of maturity to this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me 
You see, Paul understood Christ in me, the hope of glory, but notice this sentence. He strenuously contends with energy. That's his contribution. But he also recognizes, you know what? All the energy, all the dedication I have does not come from me. It comes from Christ in me. Ah. You see, understanding Christ in me is my hope of glory does not make me passive. It does not make me say, hey, it's all Christ. Not in the least. Look at Paul. That knowledge and understanding empowered him to act even with greater energy. Paul says it is his desire that the people in Colossae and the other surrounding areas would grow in heart and be united in love so they may have the riches of the complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Now Paul is going to talk and caution them in just a few minutes about other mysteries. He is going to say, you are going to hear many things, many invitations. You are going to hear religious people, including in the Christian church, say, well, you know, there, there's more to this than just the teachings of Christ. There's more to this than just what Paul says. We, we need to look for other experiences. We need to look for other things. And what Paul is saying is, I would like to present to you Christians a fullness of understanding, which is this, the real mystery of God, if you'd like to know the mystery of God, the mystery of God is Christ. So then, just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue to live your life in Him, rooted, built up in Him, Strengthened in the faith, as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all of the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and over every authority. What I'd like to do at this time here is, is to jump ahead to a later section of this chapter because I would like to talk when Paul says, I don't want anyone to take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. So here's Paul's warning. Out there, there is a competing philosophy and I need to warn you about that. And so we're going to come back because he's going to give us the reason why we can overcome that competing philosophy. But right now, I just want to speak of that. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depend on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. Hey, how's it going with that deceptive philosophy? Do you have a... Do you have a deceptive philosophy at work inside of you now? If you say yes, then you're wrong. Because the struggles you see, the temptations you see, 
Those aren't deceptive because you see them. They're wrong. I shouldn't do it. No, this is talking about a warning that says, this is what's going on when you're saying, no, I think I'm fine. I think I have this down. I'm, I'm a Christian, and Christians do this and this, and I do this and this, and, and I think I have this down. So first of all, understand when we read this, Paul is saying there's something going on that you might not even know about, and here it is. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a seventh day. Don't let other people judge you about this. What was going on is that people were saying, oh, well, you didn't, permiss you didn't participate in this festival. You don't participate in the Sabbath like you should. Understand the danger here is not in intrinsic evil of what you do. He's not saying this deceptive philosophy is because you think money and sex and power and drugs and, and no, that, that, that's a problem. But he's not talking about that one. And those of us that can sit here and say, you know, I, I think I'm doing okay on those. He's saying, no, let me tell you the danger. The danger is your participation in Sabbath. Well, what do you mean by that? There's nothing wrong with that. Actually, that's a good thing to do, and, and well, it is. But you see, the danger, people are now being judged and assessed according to their performance. Hey, would you like to be a good Christian? Would you like to grow? Well, let me tell you, here's the things you need to do. You need to participate in this festival and that festival. Hey, how are you doing on your life? I'm doing good. I, I participate in Sabbath every week. And he's saying your participation in or lack thereof is not the point here. And if you feel pressure and feel judged by this, then you're missing the point. There's the danger. These things are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality is found in Christ. Don't look for the reality in all of these activities, which in and of themselves may be very good. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and worship of the angels disqualify you. These are people then who have experiences. In this case, they have visions. They have angelic experiences. And they come and they share and they say, I have one. Do you have one? You don't. Oh, you should. You're disqualified. You don't have the secret mystery. You haven't had the experiences that I have. This was what was going on. This was the temptation. And Paul says, no, it is these people who have lost the connection with Christ. Since you died with Christ to all of these things, you died from having to perform. You died from having to keep the Sabbath. You died from having to do good deeds in order to get a relationship with God. You're dead. It's over. So why do you still submit to these kinds of rules? You know, these rules, verse 23, they have the appearance of wisdom. They look like they're wise in some ways. Well, yeah, I should do that. That is good. Look at that person does that. They have self-imposed worship, false humility. They treat the body harshly, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You may beat your body up. You may do anything that you want, and yet what he's saying, 
that will not accomplish what it is you want. There's something bigger than that. There's something better than that. So now back, see to it, no one takes you captive through the hollow, the deceptive philosophy. That's what we're talking about. The attraction to think I need to do all these things and have these experiences. Because that depends on human tradition rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Probably one of the biggest temptations is... Uh, I guess in the, in the social network wor world, we, we call it FOMA, FOMA. That's the fear of missing out. Fear of missing out. Oh, my goodness, what's going on? What's happening? So the fear of missing out as a motivation is not just a social construct of the 21st century. The fear of missing out was apparent here. Well, I haven't had this experience. Well, I don't do this. I don't have these Sabbath practices. And people saying, you need to have these. You need to have this experience. Look what happened to me. Look what I saw. Look what this person saw. You need to come and hear them talk about what they saw. And we say, oh, my goodness. And what Paul is saying, now let's get back to the basics. And in the basics, the fullness of what God has for you is going to be found in Jesus Christ, not in your experiences, not in your behavior. Jesus Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. When we were dead in our sins, God made us alive with Christ. He forgave us our sins, canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, having disarmed the powers and authority. He made a public spectacle over them, triumphing over them by the cross. What Jesus did on the cross, the power... The power of authorities and others over you is the power of condemnation. The power of Satan was the power of condemnation. He rightly says to us, you have sinned and you are condemned. God says it himself, and you know he's accurate. And what Paul is saying is, Jesus took care of that condemnation. There is now no condemnation necessary that I have to carry any longer. Christ is supreme. Christ is sufficient. Galatians 2, for through the law I died to the law so I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul is warning against a faith that's based on your performance I keep the Sabbath, I go to the festivals, I do this, I have these experiences. And Paul is saying, no, your faith is not in that. Your faith is in the Son of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is sufficient. What do I do? That's, that's our first question. I have issues going on. What do I do? How do I take care of this? Where do I go? And, and actually, the ultimate question in terms of the, the where's and the how's, the ultimate question is the who. Who? Not, not what do I need to do, not what experience do I need, but it's the who. 
Paul, at the end of chapter 7, says, I'm a wretched man in the midst of all of my struggles of trying to do the, not do the wrong things and do the right things. What a wretched man. Who will rescue me from the subject of death? He's not asking for a plan. He's not asking for a performance improvement plan. He says, I need a who. And the answer is, thanks be to God who delivers me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ helps everything. Christ changes everything. Christ is everything. I see a distinction in those statements. Christ helps everything. What that means is, I have a thing going on. I need help. I'll go to Christ. Christ, I have a thing. My family's falling apart. Okay. I, Christ could help that. Christ changes everything. Christ changes circumstances. Christ changes this. Okay, that could. But notice, both of these statements are having you focus on the everything and not on the Christ. Christ, change. What's the focus? That is the focus. It is not wrong to desire change. It is not wrong to bring your request before the Lord, but don't do it in the foolishness of thinking what you really need is that thing to change, and Christ is the one to change that. Because you've missed the point of, no, Christ is everything. In John 14, we read the familiar statement, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I'd like to say, I think a lot of times we present this in a different way. We, it's almost like Jesus says, I'm the way, sure, the truth giver, and the life giver. Come to me, and I'll show you the way. Oh, Jesus, I need to know the way to this satisfaction. Jesus, I need to know the truth here. Jesus, I need you to give me the life that I really want. And Jesus does show us many things, but that particular passage, Jesus is saying, I'm not just the way, sure. No, I am the way. You don't come to me and say, where should I go and go away from me and get there? No, you get to come to me because I am the way and I am the life. Christ is sufficient and he is Christ in me, the hope of glory. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Oh, he takes care of my wants. I, I, I want green pastures. It says he'll lead me there. I want still waters. I want rest. It says he'll do that, and it does. But I think that's a smaller vision of what it means that Christ is your shepherd. What about if we wrote it in a slightly expanded way? The Lord is my shepherd. What more could I want? That's a shepherd. He'll lead you to green pastures and still waters at times. But it's when you're not at the still waters and the green pastures. What do you got? I got thirst. I got brush. I have no food. I'm tired as a sheep. And what do you got? I have my shepherd. He's with me. What more could I want? He is the fulfiller of my wants and my true desires. Christ in me, the hope of glory. May you discover a Jesus who is 
so beautiful and so caring that just being and knowing him is sufficient for you even in the midst of other issues going on. One practical thought, read the Gospels. Read about this Jesus again and again. Get to know this Jesus. So when you realize Christ in me, the hope of glory, ah, and then you'll be able to celebrate with hope and thanksgiving when you're able to say, yet not I, but Christ through me. Let's pray. Father, your word was read. Now may your spirit apply the truth of your word. Lord, we, we, we are so distracted by so many things, so many of them good in and of themselves, perhaps, but yet they're distracting because they lead us to thinking that Christ in me is not hope enough. And so, Father, give us insight. Give us understanding. So when we are reminded, the Lord is my shepherd, Christ in me, the hope of glory, that that is all I want. Amen.